Welcome to your May 2010 edition of Voices of Experience. I'm your host, Jarrett Bro. Our theme this year is Imagine, and in the next hour, our goal is to open your mind to the endless possibilities that await you and your speaking career. All that I ask is that you stay open to changing your life by changing your mind one day at a time. Open your mind. This month, Joe Calloway's Category of One features a speaker who has perfected his expertise over a lifetime by reading one hour a day. And on Ones to Watch with Jane Atkinson, you'll meet a guy who did more than pick a lane, he actually picked a vehicle as well. But first this month, I go backstage with a speaker who is making a mark in NSA as a marketing guru. Let's visit with David Newman to learn how he works to practice what he preaches. marketing strategies that can be implemented immediately. Slight shifts, 5-10% shifts in uh, people's products, packaging, promotion that make a huge difference. What are those little mistakes or big mistakes that you tweak that result in that type of return on investment? Well, a little mistake, I know that you have a, a broadcast journalism background. A lot of people in their marketing bury the lead. They okay. take the gold, they take the magic that is really their expertise and their specialty, and they smother it with other sorts of things. They just want to load up as much as they possibly. I do speaking and coaching and consulting. I've got 17 different topics. I've served 15 different markets. I'm your healthcare gal. I'm your. I'm in agriculture. I'm in, and it's you know pick one, pick one, <laughs> polish it. And put it out there. Focus. So, you know, my specialty is at the end of the day helping people get more focus, more momentum, more clients, more money, and I think more fun. Okay. So, as a guy who teaches all of this, how much of it do you actually do for yourself? That's an excellent how question. Hard, how hard is it Boy. to do it for yourself? Because I find, you know, I at, at heart I think of myself as a writer because of my journalism background, and I don't write enough. <laughs> Absolutely. I used to be in the same boat. I would say 12 months ago, this would be an embarrassing question to answer. Now I can tell you that because I have applied a lot of this to myself, which is incredibly difficult, uh, I'll give you a quick example. My company name used to be Unconsulting. I did a session at the National Speakers Association 2008 convention in New York City. I was saying, I'm not happy with my brand. A woman comes up to me after the program, so are you going to change your company name? And I looked at her like she had three heads. And I said, why in the world would I do that? She said, well, because you're a marketing and branding guy. You just said you weren't happy with your brand, and so I figured you'd want to change it. I said, wait a second. You're making me – you're <laughs> expecting me to practice what I preach? Are you kidding? And I thought about it and thought about it and married it, and sure enough, I changed it. And now I'm starting to do a lot of things for myself that I've been advising clients to do for years. And the results are powerful. How much are you seeing a change in your business because you're practicing what you preach? My business – and you know, you'll hear a lot of fluffery and puffery at NSA, but seriously, I have never, ever been busier. Not as a speaker now, but as a coach and a consultant and an advisor on these marketing issues and strategy issues and sales development issues – 
uh, never been busier. I've got three or four projects that are taking up 150% of my time. What was the difference? Was it because you rebranded? I think it was the focus. I think it was the, you know, the rebranding is really an external manifestation of internal focus. Dude, that sounds profound. As soon as you're focused on who your people are, what your gifts are, what your strengths are, and what people are willing to pay for out of that buffet of gifts that you bring to the table, then you can start to brand it. Then you can start to articulate it. Then you can start to distinguish it in the marketplace. And that has a powerful, attractive force, not you know, we're not talking about the secret or the power of a trade. I don't believe in any of that nonsense. I believe in you get your own act together and people can smell it. It comes out your pores and they say, ooh, that guy's got it going on. I no, want I thought some that of was that. garlic. I'm kind I of want, yeah, I thank you. Authenticity oozing. It's genuine. Apparently, we've got some garlic in the family history. When you when you started doing this and realizing, ooh, I need to look at myself here and modify some things, did you do the Callaway and let it go and throw things away? Did you do more of the Jane Atkinson picking the lane in the process over the past couple of months? It was a combination of things. Uh, I definitely let some things go. Uh, picking a lane, you know, here's the ironic thing about picking a lane. Since 2003, I've exclusively been focused on marketing as my expertise. If you looked at my website, if you looked at my business card, if you looked at my company name, if you looked at my program titles, you would never know that until about 18 months ago. I did not own the word marketing, and now I literally own the word marketing that's in my company name, but all my program titles are marketing, my search engine optimization. If you look for small business marketing expert, small business marketing speaker, I'm on the first page of Google results. If you look on the social networks, if you go, and this is just mind boggling, and this is what I help my clients do for their own business, you go to LinkedIn, you type in marketing, just the word marketing, I'm number one. You put in marketing speaker, marketing expert, marketing coach, I'm number one for all of those. Now, this is a snapshot in time, obviously, that might move and change, but you want to be found, you want to be visible, and you want to be credible to the right audience for your topic expertise. All right, so let's talk about social marketing because you and I probably have had more conversations through the social marketing websites than we've had the in-person conversations. How are you really finding the payoff? I hate to use the cliche leveraging, but you know, what's, what's the payoff that you're finding as you're getting into the search engine optimization and the social networking? I think a lot of... A lot of social media marketing gurus say, just go out and do all this stuff. You should be on Facebook. You should be on Twitter. You should be on LinkedIn. You should be on names. You should be on all these different things. My philosophy is, and where I've benefited from this, I'm doing each of those things, but with a purpose. So, for example, uh, LinkedIn and names is your reputation network. Those are your connections. Those are your credentials from other people. When we talk about Twitter, uh, Twitter and blogging, I look at as more or less in the same bucket. Twitter's microblogging. But that's about having a conversation, both listening online and sharing online. As far as the social networking components of, of Twitter, I think there are, three, there are three R's. There is reciprocity, there is relationship, and there are resources. So the more you can share resources, share links, share cool stuff you find online, not necessarily your stuff, 
but that's great. Then you build relationships like you and I have developed conversationally. And then there's some reciprocity. Then I start thinking, well, how can I help Jared? How can I promote his stuff? Not with any sort of mind to be, you know, you've helped me. You've sent me some cool stuff. How can I help you? Right. How can I serve you? So then we start to do a little bit of an exchange of value. Mm -hmm. And then there's lots of other social networking, but I, I wouldn't say just go do them because they're there. Go do them because you have a business reason for doing them. I've been really lucky in the past year or in honing my skills and hiring the right people as far as search engine optimization uh, and learning to write for search engine optimization. What have you what have you been doing that's made a difference in your search engine optimization? I'm a little bit of a closet geek, so I, I love the idea of outsourcing or delegating this to someone else. Believe it or not, I do it myself, so I know just a little you bit loser. to be dangerous. I know, exactly. <laughs> so, you know, but yeah, there are some great books out there. I mean, there's Search Engine Optimization Actually, in an I'm Hour jealous. a Day, and there's all kinds of other great stuff. But right. just simple stuff, you know, on-site optimization, internal links. Yeah, I love the SEO copywriting that you're talking about. That's important. How much of yours is the copywriting versus the links versus what you're doing behind the the scenes and the stuff that I'm jealous of you for because you do know uh, the meta tags and all of that word. Do you find one more important than the other? Do you find that it's got to be a, a unified dance? And how much time do you put into it? Well, I'm no. Let me just preface my answer with I'm no search engine optimization expert. You know, I it, for my clients, for example, we always outsource that to a real full time person who knows what they're doing and is brilliant about this. But as a do it yourselfer. To answer your question, I do a lot of the back-end stuff because it's easier for me. So I do the alt tags on the photos. I do the title tags on the pages. I do the, the H1 headline tags on the actual web copy that people see. Less so the copywriting because that's more challenging. Uh, and, and even the Google experts will tell you, don't write for the search engines. Write for people, and the search engines will find you. So that's what I've been doing. What tip? for branding and marketing would you give to the listeners as we wrap things up? Uh, the combined tip would be niche with a focus. So know who you're serving, focus on them and their needs, and make that in alignment so that your website says, hey, this is topic X for this particular audience. So for example, leadership, I am the number one leadership expert, you could say, for nurse managers. And Live in those two buckets. Live in the bucket of leadership, 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 and then live in the other bucket of your audience. So what do nurse managers need? Do nurse managers need a book? Do they need a product? Do they need a coaching program? Do they need, in addition to a keynote speech, maybe a boot camp? How can you serve them? How can you help them? Last point is don't think, how, how can I make more money from them? Because that's your path to not making money and to not helping people and not serving people. Think, what other ways do they need? You know, what are they seeking solutions for that I can provide in multiple media, multiple methods, multiple approaches, all focused on those folks that have those problems? This month on A Category of One, Joe Calloway joins us again. And who have you picked for us this month, Joe? One of the absolute legendary pros in this business, Jim Cathcart. Now, I've heard Jim's name for years, and he's been on Voices of Experience a number of times, but because this is a category of one, what brings him back? What, in your mind, makes this guy 
one of a kind. The thing that impresses me so much about Cathcart, and I think why his career has lasted for so long, so many years, is he is, I can't think of anybody, Jared, who is more of a learner than he is. You know, he talks about how he started out in this business when Earl Nightingale inspired him to master something by studying it an hour a day. But Jim has done that through his whole career. He just, the guy is so hungry to learn. That's why I think he'll never get stale. People come up and they say, you know what I appreciated most about your presentation? Your sincerity. Wow, that is golden. That's exactly what I hoped they would feel, that I genuinely was talking with them, not performing for them. What's interesting to me when you talk about that continuity of reaction from the audience Mm -hmm. is that your content, your program, has changed and evolved evolved. many, many, many times. Yep. So you think that the key, though, is what would you call it, Jim? Authenticity, being genuine, The intention. Yeah. Oh, the intention? My intention is to – well, my intended effect is to have the audience walking away from the speech saying – to themselves, hmm, I never thought about it like that. That makes perfect sense. I can do that. Yeah. So I want them self-empowered. You know, I don't want to for them to say, Jim Cathcart changed my life. I want them to say, that meeting right there was the beginning of a whole new era for me. I just, you know, got it that day, and things are different and better now. You talked about it not being a performance. Right. Um, in your mind... What's the difference between giving a speech, giving a performance, and talking with the audience? I would put giving a performance in a separate category from giving a speech or talking with the audience, which I put in the same category together. Performance, to me, means a a scripted, same-all-the-time behavior. You know, I get out there and I do this this way. And there are aspects of any of my presentations that are performance pure and simple, because I know that works. But if I do something that's a, that has kind of the feeling that, that Jim was putting on an act or, act or doing a dance or whatever, you know, then I pause and I say, now let's look at that. What did that do? What was I really trying to say there? What did you get from, you know, something? I, I get them to process that, that experience or that awareness. And lately, I have started with the same mantra being present in every one of my speeches. I tell people, first off, I want to talk with you about being more intelligent, intelligently optimistic. I want you to be uh, intelligent about motivation. I want you to practice relationship intelligence, being intelligent about all your connections with people, and I've trademarked that recently. Um, And then I say, intelligence is noticing more. You know, it's making distinctions. So first, be more conscious of everything that's going on in your life. Second, more intentional, because if you increase the percentage of things in your life you're intentional about, your life starts getting better, big time. Third, more objective. Get outside your own point of view and listen to other people and hear what they're hearing, feel what they're feeling. And then fourth, relentless. Do not ever allow yourself not to continue to be conscious, intentional, objective about the things you want. You use the word relentless. You've, to me, you've been one of those role models in terms of relentless improvement and relentlessly evolving, getting better. 
You've been doing this a long time. In the last five years, what's been the most significant career decision you've made? Hmm. Um, Let me back up just a little bit before five years. 2001, September 11th. I was sitting in bed looking at the TV because my mom had called and awakened me. I was in California. She was in Arkansas. And she said, turn on your TV. I turned it on, and I saw the tragedy with the rest of the world. And later that day, I was thinking, my world just changed. I mean, big time. There is no profession of speaking today. Planes aren't flying. Meetings aren't meeting. You know, people aren't saying, hey, wonder if there's a motivational speaker we could call. So what can I do to help? I mean, forget income for the time being, because at that point it was about survival of, you know, the species. What can I do to help? And then I started thinking, qualify that. That won't require an airplane. That won't require, you know, all the usual trappings. Where's my skill? What can I contribute? How can I make the world a better place where I'm planted? And I realized in reflection over my career that I had always as an adult, been in a position to help others learn how to get things done. I was in charge of leadership training at the USJCs, you know, and all these other uh, iterations of my career. It was always about teaching people how to get results. And so I said, okay, I'm forming the 101, Highway 101, where I live, Leaders Institute. And I'm going to teach people in this corridor how to get things done. And then I'm going to get the universities and the, all the other trainers and consultants and everybody else to join hands so that we're all doing that, so that everyone who's here, half a million people in a 45-mile stretch, everyone who's here learns better how to organize volunteers, how to get a group motivated, how to uh, put a project together, how to, you know, whatever. And that's the direction my business is taking today. Thinking back to uh, other significant career decisions. Did they all work? Yeah, of course they did, Joe. Uh, no. What, what about what, talk about the experience of when things don't work? Right. And and is that a necessary experience? Do we have to be willing to risk and try something without knowing what the end is going to be, Absolutely. knowing that you might fail. Absolutely. If you are not in something over your head, meaning beyond your known capabilities, you're not growing. You know, we, you and I have been in this business a long time, and we've seen in our own lives and in other lives people's careers plateau, and they get to a point where they're really good at something, and then it just kind of levels off yeah. there. And a lot of people never find another peak beyond that level. And I've reflected on that for more than a decade, and what I've noticed is that it's because they're not afraid. If all of my tasks in front of me and all the goals before me are things that I know I can do, it's just going to be hard work. Well, there's no challenge. There's no, it doesn't invigorate me. I don't become more alive. But if I take on something, I say, I'm in. I raise my hand, and I commit to something before I know how to get it done. Now we got a game. Okay, now the engines start firing on all cylinders, and, and you know, you're, you're saying, who could I talk to? Where's a resource? What, what's a better way? Let's rethink something. I love that. One thing that I think makes you a, a category of one speaker is 
your business model, or I almost want to say business models, because you've come at this business yeah. a number of different ways. I really M- Mention just a couple of them. Well, Tony Alessandro and I were partners. I met him when he was a college professor, and we became partners for about five years, ultimately merged all of our money into one checking account and our files into one cabinet, and grew a, a great business, had some home run hits you know, with products and with speeches and, and clients. And then we disagreed on next steps, so we decided to go back to separate businesses and still stay good friends. We're the executor of each other's wills, and you know we're still ultra close, and um, went our separate ways with our businesses. And then I bought a, a psychological research firm here in Arizona, and and did a, a lot of work with that. Had hired a team of researchers to work with me, and uh, after a few years of doing that, I went into more of a author speaker model where I was mm-hmm. taking my book, The Acorn Principle, and putting all my weight behind it. And then I revitalized my original book, Relationship Selling, which I'd written back in the 80s, and started putting some real infrastructure under that with training systems and videos and all that. And today, just this year, I've written nine ebooks on that subject. So, you know, lots of things changing. But right now, at my home area of Ventura County, California, I'm building the 101 Leaders Institute as a membership organization to get all the people locally connected. And then I'll bring in speakers from the outside to do a series of seminars. Looking back over all of your career, was there, and you mentioned uh, 9-11, mm-hmm. but was there a flashpoint? Was there one moment where everything changed? Or, you know, to quote Jim Collins, where, where you felt like it went from good to great? Well, there was. The, the, the initial inflection point was when I heard Earl Nightingale on the radio in 1972, and I've told that story many times. But what he said was, if you spend an extra hour a day and study in your field, that extra hour a day accumulates over a five-year period to the point that you, you'll you be a national expert on whatever that subject is. So that inspired me big time because the first time I ever believed I was capable of being significant. First time ever. And then I met Tony Alessandra in 1979, and we became good friends. He was a college professor. I was a speaker and motivator mostly. And... Um, that put more substance into what I was doing and more uh, potential into what he was doing and expanded his world dramatically. And the two of us, you know, we had best-selling audio albums and we had books and we had video series published by USC and, you know, all that. And then, uh, gosh, you know, there's just been so many times over the years I can point to things like that that were sort of a, a, uh, what do you call it, an earth shift. There's There's a term for that, that... Sea change, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, you're you're one of the you're in the 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 category of speakers that if if you were to poll a thousand people in this business who are your role models, a whole lot of them would say Jim Cathcart. So Thank thanks you. for doing this. Very generous. Thank you. This month on Ones to Watch, Jane Atkinson joins us again. And Jane, you are watching a gentleman by the name of. Bob Parker, who is from up uh, north of the U.S. border up in Canada, where you're from. Yeah, he's from my hometown of London, Ontario, and I've known Bob for about 10 years in the business, and so he's not exactly the spring chicken of the business. He, he brings new meaning to pick a lane. <laughs> and uh, that, that that's with the pit crew challenge, which is part of what he does. He has carved out a very, very interesting uh, niche for himself with it, this experiential work that he's doing. And I think people will really find his business model fascinating. 
Well, uh, I've actually been in the speaking business for 20 years, but eight years ago, I created an experiential learning program. And uh, it is very much metaphorical in how it teaches teaming and organizational development. And it's called the Pit Crew Challenge. And what it is, we actually bring in a real race car. And we have participants uh, change the tires on a race car like a real NASCAR pit crew. It's as real as they would ever get uh, than if they were on the racetrack. And we use that as a metaphor to help them understand how they work in their organizations and uh, how they can modify their businesses in order to make things work better. So you were going along, uh, you know, eight years ago you made this change. But tell us a little bit about maybe year one, year two. Year one and year two uh, were certainly the struggles. Uh, I was very young, as we know, in this business, some gray hair helps. (laughs) And certainly experience helps. And I was young and naive entering the business. But I worked real hard to do a, a, a lot of talks. And just to get out there. But financially, things weren't always where they could be. That was before I was a member of this association. And it probably took about six or seven years before I started really landing with clients. And how I created the the Piku Challenge was for a client that I eventually uh, had a good relationship with, and they trusted me to try something different. And once that happened, then this particular program took off. So are you saying that team building wasn't always necessarily your lane, that you were doing other lanes prior to that? Were you kind of all over the place as a trainer? Or? Uh, I'll be honest and say I followed the line of, yeah, I can do that <laughs> uh, within, a, within a realm. Uh, but uh, nowadays I wouldn't touch uh, half the stuff that I used to teach. And I would never say that I did anything in great depth uh, way back then. I was more the motivational uh, speaker and, and talking about leadership in general. And it, it eventually got into that sort of niche. So the teaming was tied to leadership uh, for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, de- we deal with a lot of corporate executives, and that's the, we use the teaming as a metaphor, but we're not really teaching teaming. Gotcha. What do you think you're teaching then? Well, we're teaching all sorts of things around values, around coaching, uh, or creating a coaching culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're talking about breaking down silos within organizations, getting organizations to work together in different ways, as opposed to the you know the five-person team sort of function, which it is what we do in our program, but it, that's used as the metaphor to, to understand a lot of other issues that are going on in organizations. So when you work with a client, are you working... Obviously, you're not going in, doing a keynote, and leaving. What would that process look like? Well, my business model is is very unique. I kind of say I'm I'm more in the wholesale business. So I work with other training consulting companies, other speakers uh, within NSA and CAPS. But some of my largest clients are uh, universities. They're business schools. They run very in-depth training programs for executives, maybe three, four, five-day program within a week. They'll bring me in for a four-hour segment on day one or day two or day three. And I don't have a lot of clients other than the colleagues that I work with. And I come in, do my four-hour piece, and I leave. 
And what's wonderful about that is the relationships that I have to nurture are very few. Uh, yet I can spend more energy on those and, and really develop good relationships. And the, then the phone rings in uh, from those organizations. So with this economy that's been going on in the last little while, has that affected your business at all? in that way, or are your relationships still solid? The relationships are strong. Unfortunately, at the top end of the market, which is generally where these organizations are working, they got hit hard. And there's also another aspect of optics that has come out more now than it ever has, which is, well, Bob, we really can't have a race car running around our parking lot. We just laid off 200 people. The optics aren't good. So it has been a little more challenging this year, but we certainly see that coming back right, uh, and, and, and getting better. And you'll be positioned well for next year. Yes. So it seems as though becoming focused on this one thing has been really helpful for you. Hey, So focus has been something important in your business? Absolutely. I still keynote, mm-hmm. but rarely. I'll be honest and say maybe three or four times a year I might mm-hmm. keynote. Uh, I still love the keynote. But the focus on this area is, is really helping with determining my client understanding of my expertise. Right, right. So, uh, and it's easier. And another flashpoint for you may have been when you did your book. Mm-hmm. What's the title of your book? My book is called The Pit Crew Challenge, Winning Customers Through Teaming. Okay. And it is a good takeaway from the program. I was very careful about not putting it out in the marketplace uh, for very for very long at all. Uh, I've kept it as a takeaway specifically for clients. That's really why we brought you in, is because you have such a unique business model and you definitely are one to watch. What's coming down the pike for Bob? Well, more pit crew, uh, for sure. I would love to be able to develop another experiential program that was as unique uh, and using that metaphorical analogy. And that's the thing that'll happen eventually. As we continue to profile speakers who make a difference offstage, Renee Godefroy is back with us. And this month, Renee, you have a speaker who, I guess we could say, has emerged from the shadows of her own mental health issues to find her calling offstage. The speaker you are about to meet has been hospitalized for clinical depression. And because of her own experience in the hospital, she made a commitment to help others. Let's meet Carol Kivler. When I was 40 years old, I was diagnosed with clinical depression that was medication resistant. I've had four bouts of clinical depression, each requiring hospitalization in a mental institution. Because it is medication resistant, I have had to have ECT, better known as electric convulsive therapy, or shock treatment. I have had over 50 shock treatment in the last four hospitalizations. When people look at me and I say to them, I've had shock treatment, I'm a disconnect because they think of someone who had shock treatment, one flew over the cuckoo's nest. It by no means is like that. Shock treatment is no more than the paddles. When your heart stops, they paddle you with electricity. Well, when my neurotransmitters stop transmitting, they paddle my brain with electricity. There's no difference. Describe your experiences with your doctors. 
The doctors, um, when they would see me, their body language would change drastically. They would not look me in the eye. They would literally move away from me. Uh, They were um, constantly... Uh, limiting my potential by by telling me what I shouldn't do rather than what I could do. And I remember saying to them, give me a diagnosis, but please let me have my own prognosis. Okay. How did that lead you to establish the Courageous Recovery Program? For about 15 years, I hid my diagnosis in um, an airtight closet because I was afraid that other people would judge me. And then I decided I hadn't done anything Uh, to make myself sick. So I decided that since I have the God-given ability to uh, speak, that I would come out of the closet and tell my story. And since that time, I've been doing so in medical schools and nursing schools and have been representing NAMI, which is the National Alliance on Mental Illness, as a uh, board member. I was actually the first consumer, that's what they call mental health patients, consumers, uh, consumer to to sit on a mental health board in New Jersey. And how do you help raise money for mental health awareness? Well, 25% of everything that I um, bring in for Courageous Recovery is automatically donated to to NAMI Mercer uh, because they advocate, educate, and um, plant hope in the community of the members of community that are the hopeless. Now, What advice do you have for other speakers who might be looking for a cause that they can become involved with? Well, what puts fire in your belly? What makes you smile when you know that you have clicked and you are in that zone? When you know this is why I was put on this earth, was to bring this kind of message to others that need to hear it because I wish someone had brought it to me. Speaking of doing good works offstage, there's an easy way for you to learn more about the speaking profession while contributing to the NSA Foundation, which raises funds to help professional speakers in need of financial assistance because of catastrophic illness or a personal disaster. The Foundation Benefit Seminar is going to be Saturday, July 17th from 9 a.m. till noon at the NSA Convention in Orlando. I encourage you to register. Registration details for the seminar are online at nsaspeaker.org. It's time to get your to-do list ready. Our panel of experts has a new list of little steps you can take to advance product development, social media, writing, and business strategies as we break those big tasks into little actionable items in If You Could Do Just One Thing This Month. Hi, this is Bill Cates. If there's one thing you could do this month to create multiple streams of income, it would be to develop and sell a continuity program. A continuity program? What is that? Well, glad you asked. A continuity program is basically a subscription to receive your value in an ongoing fashion. You can sign someone on for a predetermined period of time, like six months or a year, or it can be open-ended. They provide you with their credit card and you make an automatic charge once per month until the subscription runs out or they say stop. Of course, the key to keeping this continuity program going and growing is to provide a quality program that people find valuable. 
Many folks who run such programs will tell you to have two or three price points, an entry-level price point that delivers commensurate value, a middle-level program, and a premier-level program. Sometimes the premier level is called the diamond program or platinum package or the president's circle or some other appropriate distinguished name. So what goes into such a program? Well, here's a hypothetical offering to help you get your brain around this. Your entry or silver package could include a weekly newsletter and a monthly group coaching call. Your middle level or gold package might include those two items and then you get a second group coaching call just for gold members or perhaps your radio show or monthly teleseminar or webinar or a special report. Can you now see how all the topics we discussed in previous segments have led up to your ability to offer a continuity program? Then your premier or platinum level program might include one-on-one coaching calls with you, the master. Continually promote this continuity program to your list. Join forces with other experts to cross-promote each other's offerings. You can even offer your entry-level program to a client at no charge as a value-added part of a speaking engagement to distinguish yourself from your competitors. Or you can offer your clients a discount off any of the packages. The possibilities are truly endless. So that's a continuity program. In my next segment for Voices of Experience, I'm going to talk to you about hosting one or more boot camps, retreats, academies, or symposiums, or whatever name you want to give to a special gathering of clients who pay their way to travel to your hometown to sit at your feet and absorb your knowledge and experience. This has been Bill Cates. Thanks for listening. Now go do something that produces a result. I'm Chris Clark Epstein, and it's time to talk about writing. Ever find yourself stopping in the middle of a creative writing outpouring agonizing about the placement of a comma? Or being impressed with yourself because you were considering the use of a semicolon but wished you had paid closer attention to your English teacher? That's a writer trying to be an editor moment. Stop it. You can't edit your own writing. I don't care if you have an honors degree in English. Every writer needs an editor. Suggestion. Some of us are actually grammar geeks, and much to our delight, 2006 produced a book that finally explained our passion for all things red pencil related. Add a copy of Eats, Shoots, and Leaves, The Zero Tolerance Approach to Punctuation by Lynn Truss to your library. Punctuation, yes, but hysterically funny, too. Worth the read, grammar geeks and non-geeks as well. Editing is much more than grammar checking. In fact, there's a whole range of editing services. You need to determine where you need assistance most. By the way, one of the most common criticisms of self-published books is that they were obviously self-edited along with being self-published. Ouch! Think of editing along a spectrum. You start with fact-checking. This editor helps you by making certain your dates are right, names are spelled properly, quotes are attributed correctly. Copy editing. This editor minds your grammar, P's, and Q's. They will scour your manuscript for all the errors and omissions that would have turned an English paper into a red ink nightmare. Voice editing. This editor works on the tone of your work. They help you carry a consistent relationship with the reader from the first page to the last. They may ask for another story or example for clarity, a lighter moment to lift a tough section, or more or less conversational tone. They will endeavor to move between what you want to say and what the reader will actually hear. Ghostwriting. You know the NSA myth of just record your presentations, have them transcribed, and you have a book? 
If that were ever to be true, it would be when you work with a ghostwriter, professional writers who take your thoughts and ideas and turn them into a manuscript. Your contract with the ghostwriter determines if they get their name on the finished product or not. The extent to which you need editing services varies from writer to writer. Leave this segment convinced that you will need an editor of some sort or your writing will be the poorer for it. Since only writing will make you a better writer, open your notebook for a different type of assignment. Make a list of writers you admire, call them and ask for an interview. You will be asking three questions. One, who edits your writing? Two, how did you find them? Three, what's worked for you as you've worked with an editor? Listen carefully and take good notes. When you've collected that information, formulate your editing strategy. Figure out what help you need and how you're going to get it. Write legibly. These are going to be important reference pages in your notebook. It's been terrific spending this time with you. I'd love to hear how your writing skills and attitudes are being shaped by these segments. Drop me an email at chris at change101.com. I'll write you back. Hi, Ford Sakes here. And what's the one thing you could do this month to help you monetize your social media networking efforts to grow your business? Well, let's take a closer look at your blog. You certainly have a blog, don't you? Now, if you don't, now would be a great time to get one. And for those of you that already have a blog, go take a look at it. How often do you post? Do you have the comments or feedback option turned on? How many comments are you receiving when you post? Are your entries incorporating audio, video, and images, or are you just using plain text? These questions and more are a great place to start. Before I get ahead of myself, you may be thinking, hey, I thought your VOE segments were about social media marketing. You know what? And you're right. They are. And your blog falls under the category of social media marketing because it allows for visitor feedback, you can syndicate your content through the other social media sites, and it helps you to build better relationships, communicate value to your prospects, clients, and target market. So here's your quick action step list for today. If you have a WordPress blog, make sure you update it or have your web developer update it to the latest version. This ensures you have the security and functionality you deserve. Next, go to your LinkedIn and Facebook accounts and add your RSS feed to your profiles. Now here's the concept. There are all types of add-ons, widgets, or application settings on the social media sites that allow you to take your content from your blog, especially a WordPress type blog, and syndicate your content automatically every time you post a blog. Now how cool is this? You set up the connection once, and then every time you post an entry on your blog, the content shows up on those other sites. This helps you attract readers that may have never seen your blog, and it expands your digital footprint in the process. Now for LinkedIn, log into your account, go to Edit Profile, and look at the left-hand column, and you should see a link named Applications. And you'll see instructions from there. For Facebook, it's a very similar process. Log into your Facebook profile and look at the lower left-hand corner of the browser and you should see a button called Applications. Click it and then browse for the blog application of your choosing. Once you have the application loaded, it will ask you for the RSS link or RSS feed to your blog. That's a link that you should be able to find on your own blog when you click the Subscribe to the RSS feed button. You can check out my blog at www.primeconcepts.com forward slash blog and you'll see the button I'm talking about in the upper right hand corner. 
Now that's all we have time for this issue. I'm Ford Sakes from PrimeConcepts.com reminding you to take action every day on your outbound marketing efforts. Hello, Mike Rayburn back with you. Last month, if you remember, I talked about the fact that as speakers, we use a combination of left brain and right brain and how each of us come to the table leaning a little more to one side or the other. I focused then on those of us who, like myself, are more right-brained. This month is for the other side, which, in my anecdotal experience, seems to be the majority of speakers. Those with past business or corporate success, whom I would call content speakers, who realized that they also just happen to love getting in front of an audience and sharing their message. To you, my message is this. Entertain your audience. Never, ever forget that if you get in front of people and present, you are an entertainer. From a kindergarten teacher to a trainer to someone who teaches leadership skills to Fortune 500 CEOs, we are entertainers. So, how do you become a better entertainer? Well, it's the same way you became good at everything else. Embrace it. Focus on the entertainment side as being important, as important as your content. Practice. Study other entertainers, especially good comedians. Get coaching. Study your own videos and be willing to make changes. Learn to feel your audience. Script your presentation and then take out anything that's not necessary. Pay attention to the pacing of your presentation and make improvements everywhere. For example, you don't have to be a stand-up comic, but it sure wouldn't hurt to hire someone to punch up your speech. The key, and what I want you to take from this, is that we need to accept that we are all entertainers and then to value and focus on the entertainment side just as you would studying your particular area of expertise. I really hope this has been helpful, and I will see you next month. Thanks. Down here where I was born in Cajun country, when you give somebody a little extra, it's called lanyap. This month we have a lanyap segment with Valerie Burton, who you saw on the main stage at the NSA convention last summer. Valerie is finding success, speaking both at conferences sponsored by major publications, as well as in the faith-based market. You know, we know the things that we should be doing and too often we really aren't doing them. And as I began to look through my own journey, and I'll talk a little bit about that because I'm guessing you may relate to it um, to some degree, um, I realized that it wasn't just a problem that, that I had. And that if I was going to be at my best, I had to learn to get control of my schedule. A lot of people find me through my books. Um, I've written five so far. And that, I mean, I think books are terrific marketing tools. I didn't write my books to be marketing tools, but that's what they've turned out to be. Um, so I do a great deal of speaking in the corporate market and what I call the general or consumer market. Um, which sometimes may amount to, um, you know, very large conferences or events that people are paying to come to. It might be a, a magazine. I've done quite a few events for large magazines, O, Essence, Ebony. Um, and the other piece is the faith-based market. So that's probably about 25% um, of what I do is, is also in the faith-based market, which I enjoy a great deal. That has been a huge market for a lot of people in NSA. NSA is an, an interesting creature in that some love it, some don't. Some want you to mention faith, some don't. Tell me a little bit about that faith market for people who 
have thought of it but have never tapped it or, or worked in that arena? Well, for me, it's happened organically. It's just a part of who I am. I mean, when I had my epiphany, I know it was God speaking to me. So I always felt that I couldn't take my message and completely, you know, separate it from where that message came from. So in the corporate market, it's very easy to do because the message is still the same. But when I'm in the church market, it's more um, it's more scriptural. I think that um, it has to be something you really feel led to do. And sometimes when you start getting asked to do something and, and you try something new, you realize, hey, this, this works. I will say that um, speaking particularly in the general market and the church market, the dynamic is different because people are there because they're ready for change. They they want to be there. Sometimes they paid to be there. Is it an easier market? Because oh, the audience it, is more receptive? Oh, yeah. They're, they're coming expecting something great. They're expecting that your message is for them. And, uh, and that's a lot of fun. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, what's the percentage of your work that comes from your own organic marketing versus getting hired from bureaus, which what's the breakdown there? Uh, most of it comes through my own marketing, so probably eighty to ninety percent. Mm-hmm. And and tell me how this marketing happens. Which do you have staff helping you? Or are you? I have own? a speaking coordinator who who manages all the speaking requests that we get, um, and also handles the marketing outreach that we do. I have found that consistent marketing is really important. Um, one of the simplest ways, I think, is having some kind of way you, you reach out to people online. So I've got an e-newsletter we've been doing for a long time, and that list is up to about 27,000 people, and I they get a column from me every single week. They also hear about you know what's going on, new products or new books that are coming out, um, places I might be speaking that are open to the public where they can come. And I have found over the years that sometimes you know, someone's been on the list two or three years, and then their organization has an event, and they say, oh, Valerie has to be the person that comes to speak. So a lot of times it's it's being very consistent and not giving up and making sure that people understand that message. And I have found that the fact that people come to work Monday morning and they've got an email from me, or they open it up at home on Sunday night, means that I'm a part of their their life. A lot of people will say to me, I have a, I have a Valerie Burton folder. <laughs> so your emails automatically go there. And even if I can't read them on Monday, I go back and I read them. And sometimes I read them at just the right moment. So it's like you become a part of their lives and they're expecting to hear from you. So when there's an opportunity for speaking engagement, it, it becomes a very natural thing for them to want you to be the speaker. Okay. So we all know that we need that type of touch what is it that was the epiphany that got you to the point of of having such a large mailing list as well as a large group of followers to have virtually this Valerie fan club? Well, I think it, for me, I think about four and a half years ago, I decided to do it every week. My e-newsletter was like when I felt like sending it out, I would send it out. And we had about 1,200 people on the list. When I started sending it out every single week, the list quadrupled that year from January to December. And I think it was because people then knew 
when they were going to get it. They were going to get it every week. So when they forwarded it to their friends, they forwarded it to their colleagues, they said, oh, this comes out every Monday. You should subscribe to it. And I wasn't expecting that. It was something I did for me because I felt like I needed to have more discipline in my writing. And so I made the commitment to the whole 1,200. You're going to hear from me every week in, you know, in this, in this so, year. So you're saying that the fact that I haven't done one for the past six weeks is probably <laughs> going to impact my followership. Absolutely. <laughs> Because it's random, and yeah. I, and that's what oh, I was oh, doing. Yes, it is. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Ask any of the few people who subscribe. <laughs> biggest failures, biggest mistakes, things that you wish, gosh, I wish I would have done that, but maybe I learned so much from it. You know, I would say you've got to know who your audience is, and it's so easy. You know, you come to NSA, you come to a convention, and you look around and you see what everybody else is doing. And it's so tempting to say, ooh, maybe I should go in that direction. Maybe I should do this. And I'll never forget an engagement I had probably seven or eight years ago. And, you know, I looked at all these speakers and they were doing like sales conferences and stuff. And I thought, oh, that's a great market. And some people had heard me speak at an event and they loved me. So they came back. Their company, their big company is having a sales conference. And that's not my market. I don't, that's not. Unless I'm speaking on what I need to speak on, that's not that's not for me. And I will never forget going out there and talking, but feeling this complete disconnect from the audience because I agreed to speak on something that was not my my core. It wasn't. Did you die on the stage? I know the few, the the one time I made that mistake, it just felt like death for an hour. I felt like it. Fortunately, it wasn't a really long <laughs> keynote. It was like thirty minutes, um, but I felt like it. And even though I got positive feedback from from some people in the audience afterwards, I knew, and I said, I will never do that again. I speak on what I speak on, and yeah. if it doesn't fit for a particular event, great, I can refer someone else. But it's just not worth the energy you have to put into it. And I think you know you've got you've got a special energy for what you do. And if you stay in your lane, you're going to run that race and do really well. But when you start going into other lanes that really aren't yours, then that's when you experience failure. And you'll know it. You'll know it in your heart. What's next? Well, lots of things are next. Um, A couple of things that we have on the horizon. One will be an online continuity program. So this will be – it'll have different levels of personal development. But basically, people will be subscribing. Um, we are also developing a coach training program that will launch in 2010. What I have found is that, you know, I love coaching. It's great. But there are so many people out there who will be great personal development coaches. And I want to develop them so that they can go out and coach. So I think, you know, sometimes you get to a point and you realize maybe I can replicate more of what I'm doing. Obviously, I can only do so much. Um, and I see television in my future. I love Television, and so we've uh, I co-host a TV show out of Chicago on the Total Living Network, which has been a lot of fun. So we've got some ideas for some new uh, television shows that we've been pitching. So I'll keep you posted. Here it is, May. We are only about two months away from the National Convention, which is going to be in Orlando on the 17th through 20th of July. And joining me to talk about what's on that agenda is Mark Mayberry our conference chair, and Phil Van Hooser. You may have heard of him. The uh, NSA president is going to chime in here a little bit. But, Mark, let me direct the first question to you. People always want to know who's speaking at the conference. So who are some of the names that you have on the main stage? Jared, we have some incredible talent. Wintley Phipps, Mark Gunger, Chad Hymas, Steph Duplicis, and Karen Cortell-Reisman. 
and I can hear the audience listening right now saying, I haven't heard of any of these people. So tell me a little bit about what's going into the philosophy of bringing in so many unknowns for the main stage. I will let Phil explain that. I got to tell you, they may not have heard of them yet. But by the time we leave Orlando, they'll be talking about them forever. One of the things that I've learned as, I, as I've gone around the country talking to chapters, listening to our members in a number of different ways, is that they Around have, the world. Well, so. around the world. That's absolutely true. Is that they ask for some very specific things, or at least expect some very specific things from their uh, convention experience. For example, they expect new voices, new faces, people they haven't seen before. They like to be surprised. Um, they like to see these new fo- voices and faces doing their normal their normal material. They like different styles of presentation. They like different parts of the world represented. And so, as you know, Mark and Jared, for your information, we have spent a lot of time literally combing through all kinds of proposals and, and demos and all that go with that from around the world to find folks that will fit this bill. I am absolutely convinced that when this Conference is over. We're going to be talking about this one for a long time because of the wonderful surprises that are in store for all of us. It brings to mind when I uh, was on a uh, committee for the Atlanta workshop a few years ago, and the name Bob Danzig came up. And I really didn't know Bob, and they uh, decided to use him as one of the general session speakers. And when he got on stage, I really didn't have high expectations, and the man blew me away. He sure did. So that's the kind of thing that you and I are shooting for and Jolene, people maybe that the uh, members have not heard of, but they will walk away with their head shake and say, where did they find them? Right. And don't forget, May 21st is the deadline for early bird registration for this summer's NSA convention. Early registration is just $615 for four days of incredible learning. Plus, NSA has negotiated a special rate of just $144 a night at the Orlando World Center Marriott. Make your reservations now. I'll be there, and I expect to see you there as well. If I'm going to be a speaking star, I'll have to fly first class. I'll be smug and coy, avoiding eyes as the little people pass. Cause everyone around must know just who I are, baby, if I'm gonna be a speaking star. Okay, speaking stars, it's time to return to our live performance from A Night of a Thousand Starfish, recorded live at the NSA convention. Now, this month, we feature Tim Gard who went so far as to have a seamstress sew for him a custom-made starfish costume that was kind of a bright pink coral orangey color. Anyway, to put Tim's performance and costume into perspective, we're going to first dissect his performance with my buddies Ron Culbertson and David Glickman. Well, in case anybody really doesn't have a visual on this, if you could imagine uh, a combination of uh, safety cones from the highway attached to his arms, that's kind of what it looked like, his bright orange sort of pointy appendages off his body. What, what Tim does really well is almost implying that he doesn't know how ridiculous he looks. <laughs> it's true. It's, it's, there's an innocence to it and a boyishness to his style that makes you laugh because it's almost like he's not in on the joke and we are and he doesn't get it 
And he had a great deal of difficulty in the beginning getting the microphone up to his mouth because his hands were extended in his starfish costume. That alone was probably 45 seconds to a minute of laughter when all he did was try to get the microphone to his mouth. That is visual brilliance. And a lot of us as speakers don't realize that we can use that kind of humor to accomplish funny things without saying a word. Had Tim just gone on stage, made that entrance, tried to take the mic, failed, and walked off, he would have still gotten the standing ovation and achieved what he was trying to do. Again, with understatement, he was a starfish on stage. <laughs> the script, to me, was act two. Yeah. To me, it was act two. Well, one of the things that, that just confused the daylights out of me as I'm standing on the side of the stage, okay, I'm the MC of the event, and I'm not sure if I need to go help him get his hand, get his microphone, and it was outrageously uncomfortable for me, and I had to tell myself, I think this is part of his shtick, but I don't know how much of it was actually planned. Well, you know, uh, the bit involved his, um, you know, trying to get the microphone. I think we could all agree that a microphone stand would have made a difference for that one. <laughs> well, he did have a microphone stand, and then he has he he has his script on a music stand that you let him use, and then the papers fell off, and I actually had to go help him at that point. It, it was just outrageously brilliant on his part the way he stretched it out and used whatever went wrong to his advantage. And let me just point out one detail about how he accomplished that was when you started putting the script back on the stand you put the one that he'd already gone through well most of us would have said no i've, I've done that one he goes nope read that one <laughs> and our simple phrase made a ton of difference in how the audience reacted they laughed at that when most of us wouldn't have gotten a laugh because we said no not that one again brilliance of humor that just comes out naturally in in tim as we go to the live recording i want the listening audience at home to realize that you're going to hear a minute and 35 seconds of live laughter. And what you're hearing is the brilliance of Tim Gard milking the audience as he made an attempt to get on stage and then to eventually grab the microphone. Adaptation, as we heard earlier, is a wonderful thing that happens to the starfish. And adaptation tonight has brought us Tim Gard.
Like I was saying to the officer. <laughs> it all happened so suddenly. <laughs> Last night I was bottom feeding the way I do and I just excreted my stomach over some organic matter. A snail, a mollusk, a bivalve. Mmm, bivalves. When suddenly the water exploded all around me and became so agitated, I was ripped from my dinner and tossed about wildly around the torrential surf. I couldn't even extend my tube feet to get a better grip. I found out later it was a class three hurricane caused probably by the prior administration the way all disasters were caused by the prior administration. <laughs> anyway, sure as Bob's your uncle, I... <laughs> I lost consciousness, which is odd because I don't have a brain, just complex ganglia. <laughs> and I awoke on the beach. And just let me say for the record, I don't know what I was doing on the beach. I mean, I reproduce asexually. I have no business being on a beach anywhere. <laughs> I mean, not like I'm going to wait for hermaphrodites gone wild or something, but... <laughs> I'm as male as the next person. I can expect extrude sperm into the ocean even without a female present. Much like, like Dale. <laughs> if I want offspring, I just split down the middle and bam, there's another one of me, which as a speaker, even for a speaker, is kind of narcissistic. Anyway, I'm laying on the beach waiting for the 9.06 a.m. high tide to return me to the water, all the while playing dead, the only way an exoskeleton being such as myself can play dead, when all of a sudden I watched as this bipedal radial-challenged meat bag <laughs> approached me, picking up my relatives on the beach, throwing them back one at a time. And I'm laying there on the beach and I'm watching this person approach. This meat sack is getting closer and closer and closer. And it picks up my cousin Bernie, who, who I'd once spent a weekend with. And he tossed Bernie into the ocean for the waiting predators to eat. And as he reached just to the top of his apex, I could have sworn I heard him say, I can see Dale, I can see David Hasselhoff's house from up here. Some of them we just do for ourselves. <laughs> he hit the water and the sharks devoured him. The horror, the horror. Line, please. 
to give you hair. I read that one. I read that one. That one's good. Anyway, I'm watching this meat sack serial killer slowly approach, throwing my brethren back into the ocean one at a time, one at a time. And he walks up to me and winks one of his rudimentary eyes at me and says, you're next. <laughs> Words that will haunt me for the rest of my nine-year life. And I did the only thing that I could do. I flexed my skeletal plates and I flipped him the bird five ways in five directions all at the same time. <laughs> and suddenly another bipedal approached him and said, what are you doing? It can't possibly matter. There are all these starfish. And he cryptically muttered again. He started talking about how he had to feed the predators offshore and threw them screaming into the surf one after the other. It matters to that one. It matters to that one. The horror. The horror. And so I sat here as finally he stopped and the police arrived and arrested him and took him away. And now I'm sitting here waiting for the 906 tide to take me back to the ocean where hopefully I will never again hear this story come back not even one more time. And I wonder if these bipedal meat sacks, even for an instant, have an idea that they should never meddle in the lives of endoskeleton creatures. The horror. The horror. It's time for our May visit with NSA President and Chief Imagineer Phil Van Hooser. Phil, as the individual speakers over the past year have made individual adjustments based on the economy to their own businesses, some have asked, what has NSA as an organization done, and how is it weathering the current economy? Well, in a word, we're weathering the economy, both present and past, remarkably well. When I talk to members, uh, they want to know two or three things. The one thing they want to know, first off, is, well, how are membership? What's our numbers right now? Well, i got to tell you that, that as the other industries and associations have declined in membership, we've experienced a little of that. But we've held remarkably strong and with over 3,200 members to our credit at this moment in time. But with that said, I should also say that the Academy for Professional Speaking – continues to grow. We currently have over 175 people enrolled, and for them, that's an entree into professional speaking that the National Speaking Association has provided as well. The other measurement that is key, of course, is meeting attendance. And even though our meeting attendance has declined slightly, and I do stress slightly in recent years, comparatively speaking, with meetings industry in general, we are holding up far above the norm. And, and I'm very, very proud of that. I think that says we're doing a lot of things right. Individual members often write a check, and they immediately want to know what's the value they're getting. I honestly don't know what I pay every year for dues because I'm going to pay it no matter what. I can't afford not to be part of NSA. But for the person who's saying, 
well, what benefits am I getting? How would you respond to that? Well, I'd say there's a number of benefits, a great number of benefits. I, too, believe that the value of the dues that we pay far exceeds the cost to us monetarily. But with that said, it's only fair that our members should hold us true and hold us accountable for what they get for their hard-earned dollars. I'll give you one example that I'm very proud that our board and our staff have been able to accomplish in recent days that have been a benefit for all NSA members. We realized that as a group, we needed to have a video component uh, as part of our membership online directory. But we also realized that the cost was prohibitive. If we would have upgraded our system, software, hardware, all the necessary changes to accommodate that in-house, it would have cost us approximately $150 per member. And the only way we could have afforded to do that is to pass that along in the form of dues. We weren't ready to do that. So I give credit to our staff in Tempe. They did some very creative working alliances and frankly partnered with eSpeakers to provide that video component for all NSA members. They did it without any additional cost or raising of dues. And it's available to be enhanced even further by individual members if they chose to, simply in terms of paying a, an additional fee. But I've been very pleased with the services that we do offer and the value that's associated with those services. Phil, many people experience NSA closest to home through their local chapter. What's the future of the local chapter? I think the future of the local chapter is, is very strong. NSA leaders and chapter leaders from all across the United States continue to work together to try to enhance the value of local membership and the support it offers to the National Association. After all, chapters are the local extension of the national brand, and it's an opportunity for people in the coming into the speaking business to create that local bond, that local support group. You can rest assured that the NSA board and the staff are going to continue to support the local chapters to whatever degree necessary to accomplish the success and viability of businesses of their local members on an ongoing basis. That's our commitment to our membership. Last month, I closed out the show by talking about how springtime is a time of renewal. Well, as we talk this month, about what's ahead for this summer's NSA convention. I realize the summer convention's an extension of that renewal for me, but it's really a time where I get to recharge my batteries as I visit with old friends and meet new ones. And together, we share best practices, we trade ideas, and we build that bigger pie that our founder, Cavett Roberts, spoke of. You know, I get just as excited about attending the summer convention as I did when I was a kid, getting ready to go off to summer camp. I look forward to seeing you there as we all open our minds to the endless possibilities and together we imagine. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.